Hi everyone, welcome to PA Talks, an interview series by Parametric Architecture, the world's most renowned avant-garde architecture platform about parametric and computational design. We meet the architecture and design pioneers on this podcast and talk about their careers, experiences, methodologies, and visions for the future. My name is Hamid Hasanzadeh, founder and editor-in-chief of Parametric Architecture Platform. Welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. To support this podcast, please check the links in the description. Make sure to follow our platform on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and support us on Patreon. You may listen to this conversation on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. The following is my conversation with talented tutors of design morphine, Alejandro Rojas, Alejandro Garcia Cadia, Madeline Goroge, and Alexander Bursach. Design Morphine is a global creative hub for design that focuses on workshops, lectures, projects, and explorations. The team consists of multidisciplinary designers that strive to combine learning and teaching elements of design across unique variety of applications application techniques. With a team of over 30 industry-leading professionals and seven years of experience, Design Morphine has educated over 10,000 students using a generative network of cultures. They go by the code of teamwork in all branches of design, be it architecture, arts, and product design. In this episode, we talk about wide-ranging topics such as procedural assemblies, spatial syntheses, biomorphic networks, and hyperscans for Design Morphine webinars. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Alejandra. Hi, how's it going? Thank you. How are you? Good, good. Excited to be here. Thank you. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. Thank you. So, welcome, Alejandro. Uh, and what are the passions that drive you to create and to create design products? And uh, tell us a little bit briefly about yourself and uh, your 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 practice by Alejandra Design. So, I'm an architect. And um, by Alejandra Design really started as a creative outlet for myself to start pushing my computational design skills forward and also to start exploring fabrication. So as architects, we are um, kind of like used to waiting quite a bit of like time when we actually see our designs um, kind of like, you know, come to life. Um, so this was um, a cool way for me to like really start um, not only designing digitally, but really bringing those designs out of the computer into the real world so that, you know, we can have some um, tangible products. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your background, architecture, which university yeah. you studied? So I um, started my architectural studies in Peru. I was born and raised in um, Lima. So I did two years at um, Universidad Peruana de Ciencias Aplicadas. And then my family immigrated to Canada, where I, um, we moved to Toronto, where I started um, my five-year program um, in the University of Waterloo. And then right after graduating, I traveled to London um, to the Architectural Association um, to do the master's, the DRL program. Okay, and now you are in New York? Yes, now I'm currently based in New York City. Um, I've been practicing uh, for quite a few years in different um, architectural firms. I've done ground up in Brooklyn. I've done a lot of um, interior design. Um, in New York City, mostly, you know, offices and retail that, you know, you, you do because uh, Manhattan is kind of like a little bit maxed out <laughs> out of space. So most of like the ground up usually happen in, yeah. um, in Brooklyn. Um, it's a really exciting market. It's super fast paced. Um, so it's, it's really great. And now I'm um, actually teaching as an adjunct faculty at three different schools. Um, yeah. So I teach computational design. I also teach design studio and um, graphics and visualization. Yeah. Uh, during this pandemic, you're all working mm -hmm. at home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Me and my students have figured out a kind of like good workflow uh, around working remotely and Zoom. So um, I have kind of like a double setup um, with my laptop, with a tablet so that, you know, you can sketch. It's 
it's really great because especially my computational design class has moved into this idea of like animation and exploring as animation as a design tool um, to for design. So, you know, there are some um, kind of like interesting things that I think we're going to start or keep applying when we go back to presential classes. Yeah, I see. So your upcoming webinars are what we believe all been waiting for. Could you give us a brief intro insight into procedural assemblies version 1.0 and what are we going to expect and what will be the what we will be able to take away from uh, attending this workshop? So procedural assemblies is something that I'm super excited about. Um, because it deals with a slightly different design methodology. So as an architect, right, where as designers, we're usually um, kind of like controlling all the formal aspects of the design. We kind of like have a vision of what we want it to look like. We work through iterative design and we come with an outcome. And the cool thing about um, working um, with this new approach is that we're dealing with a little bit of unpredictability to it. So now what we're going to be working with is how do we design a system, a set of like rules to actually create the outcome, the final design. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of like we're, what we're calling a bottom-up approach um, that is part of like this bigger kind of like emergent design um, kind of like thinking, which is super exciting because now um, we're dealing with like modules and how, you know, do we start creating again the set of rules as to like how they are connecting. So that's kind of like the thinking that I want to teach um, with this webinar that is more oriented um, towards that thinking. Yeah. And wh what kind of software you're going to use for, so, for this webinar? Mm -hmm. So we're going to be. And in can Rhino you talk a little bit about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Continue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be in um, Rhino Grasshopper. We're going to be working primarily uh, with Wasp. And then we are going to start looking at different like workflows as to like how we're dealing with this unpredictability and what other inputs we can start working. So it's going to be a very design-driven workflow um, to start, you know, creating different outcomes. We're mostly going to be uh, focusing on housing clusters, um, which is actually inspired from the chapters that we're setting up um, next year um, with our new master's degree yeah. uh, that Design Morphine is starting to offer. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk also a little bit about this master's degree? Yeah, so this master's degree is like a really exciting initiative um, that, like I said, is starting next year. So we are, um, the way that this master is set up is a little bit different, is uh, broken up into different chapters. So the chapters are really um, how the whole program is kind of like um, structured. And it starts by examining the body. And then it starts examining where the body lives. And then it examines how the living kind of like thoughts really start clustering with it uh, with one another and then it starts examining where the pods or where this living unit sit within a larger context which is the city so it's really a really uh, an interesting approach of seeing you know uh, kind of like focus right from us from the person all the way to the city yeah yeah and it's the master's degree is all online right yeah it will be all, all online Okay. Uh, can you discuss a little bit about the level of the workshops that you're going to start, which, for example, if anybody doesn't know about Rhino Grasshopper, if they can join or not, intermediate, beginner? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely going to be, I believe, a beginner kind of like intermediate. So if you're somebody that is not fully familiar with Grasshopper, you should still be able to follow um, what we're doing. Of course, there are some things like, you know, data management that may be a little bit confusing as, you know, we're going through it. Um, and I always try my best to, you know, explain these things, but definitely if uh, you have some more experience with Grasshopper, you're going to be able to follow um, a little bit faster. But the way that um, I'm going to set it up is that um, you are going to have access to the files. 
So at any yes. point, if you feel lost, you can catch up. Um, yeah. And then you're also going to be, um, you're going to have access to the recordings. Um, so if, again, you're not, you're feeling like you're a little bit left behind or you're not fully um, understanding some of the few concepts, you can always go back. That's the real benefit of kind of like doing a live recording because then you're able to ask questions on the go, but at the yeah. same time, <laughs> you know, go back to it uh, a little bit later and just, you know, review some of the concepts. I see, I see. I'm impressive. So exploring the intersection of craft, craftsmanship and technology is your tagline on Instagram. I just want to uh, open it a little bit. Do you have a dream project in mind that you are yet to create and what expressions would you, uh, would you like to focus on build uh, the project as? Yeah, um, I actually don't have one project but many different projects and I think that um, that's something that I'm always struggling with. It's kind of like, you know, where do you go next? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, well, I'm working right now on the lighting uh, collection and the idea is to start scaling up this product, to start thinking about furniture scale, to start thinking about larger scale. That was always the goal uh, when I set this, um, this practice. And I wanted to start with smaller products where I could really start understanding the material that I was working, the workflow um, that I was setting for myself. Um, I recently acquired um, a 3D printer for clay. So that's another uh, thing that I'm working on right now in terms of like talking to the machine and working with the G-code um, to start getting some like real-time feedback. So many exciting things ahead. Amazing. <laughs> just, just always finding, you know, the time to, to work on those. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And your thesis, the thread uh, that explored the design opportunities uh, of the semi-autonomous airborne potential uh, system was a fantastic work, actually. Thank you. Uh, it also got published in Architectural Design Magazine for the Parametricism 2.0 edition. Can you share a few words about the work as inspiration to the young designers out there? Yes. Um Actually, a little bit of like a disclosure right here. Uh, the agenda for the studio when we were working on this was that we needed to 3D print with the quadcopters. Um, so we always had like this goal that we wanted to build something with the quadcopters. It didn't matter what it was. We just wanted to build something. Uh, but then we got really caught up on the idea that the quadcopters were really imprecise. They couldn't carry. Uh, you know, a 3D printer, they, they couldn't really print. So after many failures, we had to like step back and look, okay, what is it really that we're trying to achieve? And then we were all, we want to build something. So that's when we actually switch into like using cables and threads. And that's why it became the thread as the, as the kind of like title for the project, because yeah. that was the moment that as designers, we decided to step back and really look at the, you know, overall picture and ask ourselves, what is it that we're trying to achieve? And I think that's something that, that as, you know, architects, um, sometimes we get lost, you know, in looking at very specific details and trying to like solve things when sometimes we really need to, you know, step back and ask the bigger question. What is it that we're trying to do? What are we trying to achieve? And sometimes it's hard because we are, you know, reminded of the failures and we want to keep going, you know. Um, but it's good sometimes, you know, to like really um, ask that question to be able to move forward. Amazing. Yeah, right. All right. So uh, as, the, as my last question, and also I got this question from the question box as well, any tips for architecture students? Learn as much as possible. I, I use this as my own personal motto. I've, I'm always, I, I consider myself a student. I'm, I'm always trying to learn. The moment that you think that you know everything, I think it's, you know, the moment that you stop learning. And there's so much to learn. There's so many tools, new everything coming every day. So um, just, just, you know, keep learning. Keep learning. Yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Alejandro. Thanks for joining. And I'll keep, uh, we'll continue with uh, Alejandro. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for Thank joining. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello. Hello, Hamid. How are Hello, you? Hello, Alejandro. Welcome. How's it going? Thank, Thank you, you for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining the, to the live show. Yeah, my pleasure. We're so yeah. excited. <laughs> no, I'm super excited. I I actually want to, you know, like take the opportunity to compliment you for for the amazing platform you put together. I think, you know, like this this platform, like the interviews you started to do, I think was during lockdown. I remember yes. one of the first interviews during lockdown. Like I've been following all of them. It's amazing yes. to be invited here now to give myself a short, you know, like explanation of our webinars and workshops. But you know, in general, like all the all the posting and spreading the word of parametricism, I think it's amazing. Thank we you so much. Congrats for that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we started basically. We were doing interviews before that, but generally, uh, it got very wider by mm. starting the pandemic because mm. we reached to the people that we couldn't reach before. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we did a lot of interviews with I very see. great famous architects. No, it's a, we're continuing it. <laughs> yeah, I really hope so. Really hope so. It's amazing to you know open Instagram and just get all these, all this feed from you. Thank, Thank you me. so much. Thank you. So you're a senior architect at Zahadid Architects and work on developing uh, developing computational building strategies from design to construction across all different stages. Could you enlighten us about? First of all, about yourself, and second, about the work you do at VHA. Yeah, of course. So about myself, um, I I also studied, uh, well, I studied back in Alicante. That's where I did my Bachelor in Architecture. I did two exchange programs, one in TU Berlin and one in Cal State University, Long Beach. And I think, like, you know, that kind of opened up a lot my, my mind at the time, like trying to start thinking that, Maybe I was taught that uh, architecture should be approached in a certain way, but then when you start moving and traveling and learning from other people, you start understanding that actually like you, you need to develop your own vision about all these things. And then I think for me, like I always had this interest in parametric architecture, like, like from my bachelor days. I remember reading the primer of Grasshopper, and you know I was completely hooked to that. And ever since I was really trying to find, you know, a way for me to get into this world. Then I found the DRL program as, you know, perfect, um, how do you call it, um, you know, like a, a kind of perfect template for me to okay. le learn from the best, also learn from your peers, which is something I, I learned over time that is super important, like learn as well from your colleagues. And it was just the perfect setup uh, for me to uh, develop on this. After that, I worked at Greenshaw and HKS, and then I ended up at Sahar Hadid. And I think over this period, I will say like, you know, as much as, as I like and I focus on design, it's also very important for me and the work I do in the office, the idea of workflows. And I do workflows like uh, to, to tackle uh, complex geometry. And I will say, uh, I go from the form finding process through uh, developing all the kind of procedural modeling to delivering the final detailed uh, design project for the consultants and stuff. So more specifically, I work on facades. And I would say in terms of, I, I'm sure it's gonna be a question that will raise up at some point. <laughs> I, I, I find myself in between Maya, Grasshopper and Revit, like kind of taking uh, like the entire process more or less because I'm very much like a workflow-driven person. Yeah. yeah, awesome, amazing, amazing works. So about the Spatial Synthesis version 1.0, uh, which is the topic you will be lecturing at Design Morphine mm -hmm. webinar, what would be the highlighted elements uh, in your class? So, I mean, first of all, like as Alejandra was mentioning before, uh, the, the, the webinar, it's meant to be a, an introduction to what we are going to be expanding during the masters. So it's a master in computational design. And myself, I'll be uh, taking the second chapter, which is living cells. So for the webinar, uh, I, I, I will start bringing some of these ideas that I've been exploring uh, on my time. Uh, 
Uh, Maya to Grasshopper workflows. That's that's the main um, that's the main kind of uh, connection in between softwares. So I'll focus on these two softwares, and then uh, I think m m most importantly, like uh, procedural modeling and topology uh, will be kind of the core of what I'm going to be teaching. So it's like pretty much the idea of how you take complex design and you 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 kind of like narrow it down to simple steps almost like if you were cooking a recipe it's like you know you have all the different steps on how you get to your final product but then you can always change some ingredients and get something different so i think that's the idea in terms of design we have two main approaches that i've been exploring so far one is uh, the rheotomic surfaces or minimal surfaces and then this is inspired by the blue by the book The Function of the Oblique by Claude Parent and Paul Virilio. Basically, the idea of rejecting the horizontal and vertical planes or the horizontal vertical axis and start understanding architecture as a kind of continuous surface uh, where you can just navigate through. And then the second idea is modularity and discrete aggregations of living cells. Uh, to create an overall complex spatial organization altogether. So we will we will take these two ideas. We'll get started with that. Uh, you know, we'll we'll start the conversation, and then I hope like you know some of the students will get interested and then uh, join us for the for the master, where we will have yeah. more time to develop. Of course. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, generally, which which software do you suggest as an architect? Uh, architects or artists must know in the current era or current scenarios, and which of them integrates with each other, considering the ease of use. So this is uh, I, I've been asked this question many times uh, when teaching. I think I mean I always try to explain it the same way. Like for me, it is more relevant to identify the design steps rather than the software itself. Yeah. So if I, if I explain the design steps, for me, it will be form finding, first step. So during the form finding, you could do it by sketching by hand. Like you could do it by low poly modeling, like I do, for instance, in Maya. Sometimes I sketch and I, then I do low poly modeling. You could do it through physics simulation. You could do it through different uh, kind of simulation. Then you step into the second uh, part, which is you know, start um, like breaking down your design into parameters, start rationalizing your geometry. So you gain control over your design and then you start, you know, like being able to change any inputs depending on what the consultants are feeding you with. Or, you know, like, um, I don't know, maybe you have like uh, millions of facade panels, everything doubly curved, and then you start understanding, okay, I only need like 10% of it to be doubly curved. And then, most of it can be singly curved or it can be like just flat. So you, you get like this uh, control over your geometry. And then the last step is when you produce the, um, the information, the architectural information for third parties. Say, uh, you know, a 3D model in Rhino, or it can be a Revit model, or it can be uh, just architectural drawings. So I think as long as you understand form finding, rationalization, and production, you can find your software. So myself, form finding, Maya, rationalization, grasshopper, production of drawings. If it's something quick, I just do it in Rhino. If it's something more complex, I set up a workflow between uh, grasshopper and Revit. But then there are million softwares, and it seems like every year we have <laughs> like 10 times more. So it's very difficult, you know, like uh, I yeah. try myself to learn, uh, as Alejandro was saying before, I try myself to learn, you know, every new software that comes up. It's difficult, I, I can yeah. imagine. For exactly. all <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard to be master in all of those software, but you can you can pick a couple of them and be, become a master. Yeah, yeah. right. I, th I think that's the key, actually. I think like you know, being very good at something and then know a little bit about everything. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. right. So lastly, you have been lecturing globally uh, on your work and teaching many things. What advice would you like to give young architects and designers around the world? Okay, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's the great question always. So what it was, was to, to be given to new students? So I think like, you know, learning and, 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 and innovating as much as possible, that's super important. Believing in yourself, 
like super important. Like it, it, I remember, you know, like from the, my bachelor studies back to before even like traveling outside Alicante itself, like first time, like I will often be, you know, like get an idea that I thought was strong, but then the professor will reject it. And then, you know, you say, oh, why, why is not a good idea? But then you start traveling, you start working in different places and you see that often what happened is like an idea that didn't work out somewhere in another place is amazing. So, you know, like you almost end up like developing your own language, your own workflows, and then try to see like how you can uh, plug it where, where you are. I think another idea also that important for, for students, I learned it myself in DRL and I, I truly believe in this. The RL Design Research Lab. Are you also there. are you also teaching over there? In, uh, in I'm not. I'm teaching Bipro uh, Bartlett. Bartlett introduction workshops, and I'm always uh, keen to help uh, any student in in DRL. But I haven't been teaching myself there. I know everyone, of course. I met Alejandra there, indeed. I met Tatlina there. Like we are all big family. <laughs> but I think I think the idea of design as research that they they foster in DRL is something really amazing because when you think about it, like you know, as as designers, you often just think, oh, I just need to make an output. But when you start thinking about design as a research, as as a process, and then you start learning from the process. Like then you you are much more capable of tackling like the next problem because you're pretty much like taking ideas that that you you were exploring before and didn't go forward, but then you you convert them into something else. And I think designers research in general is something that I didn't understand right until a few few years, like you know, uh, I think it was 2015 or something. But anything I did before, I was just designing for what I needed at that point. But ever since then, I've just been building up on my design skills and my design research because it's always like, you know, just building up concept one on top of the other. And last, I think, uh, advice, that's something I think I try to do with my workshops and my webinars is to, at the beginning, I was afraid that, you know, something you are doing is the first time you are trying to do a design, to do your post in Instagram about your you know, mm -hmm. design that you, you, you think is not good enough, but you just need to try it. And I think like, you know, you learn something, you design it, then you put it out there, you create conversation, and then you click repeat and you do the next one. And it's yeah. an iterational process. You just need to keep going and you just need to get started, right? I feel like uh, sometimes it holds you back when you have a bit of a fear to fail or like a fear to not being good enough. You just need to like go for it and, you know, step by step, like you get somewhere. And I, that's what yeah. I, I, I tell all the students from webinars and workshops, like, you know, just present what you have. Like, it's great to, to have a conversation about your work. That's, how, that's the way you learn. You know, it's not like, it's not going to be a final masterpiece the first time you open Maya, you open Grasshopper. Most likely, you know, you're not going to like what you see. But, you exactly. Know, eventually <laughs> you get there. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's thank, right. thank you for organizing this, Emil. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining to the live session. Mm -hmm. And I hope uh, we'll continue. We, we will continue this and we'll see you in the workshops and webinars and also masters. <laughs> hope so. Hope so as well. Thank you, Hamid. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any final words or to say or? No. Uh, well, I hope to see everyone in the webinar. Thank you. <laughs> we'll continue conversation there. Amazing. Thank you. See you. Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hi, Hamid. Hi, Alexander. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. And till Madeline goes and restarts his phone, I just tried to invite you. So thanks oh, yeah. for joining. No problem. Happy to be here. Amazing. Thank you. So uh, initially, you were working as an experimental studio, Suman Han design mm -hmm. where uh, you focus on simulation and uh, dig digital fabrication. Uh, and later you joined ZHA and got to, got to work from concept to schematic design. Can you briefly, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and briefly tell us how you developed your skills from both the companies? Of course. Um, 
I'm originally from Serbia. I finished my undergrad and my first master's course in Belgrade. After that, I moved to London and I joined the DRL at the Architectural Association. I was actually in the year under Alejandra, so she was kind of my senior. Um, and uh, after graduating uh, at the course, I started uh, working for Sumingham Design. She's one of the uh, alumni from the course. And like uh, you already mentioned, we've mostly been dealing uh, in, the, um, in the office with the issues of digital fabrication. Uh, and let's say in comparison to ZHA, the workflow is a, a lot different, even though we're using the same platform. I was mostly in Maya in, in both uh, offices, but uh, let's say more simulation-based uh, um, work was carried out with the Sumin because we were working with particles and fluids and uh, things like that. While in the uh, offices, you might uh, expect the polymodeling is more of a focus because we're working on uh, buildings and master plans and projects that uh, are dealing more with, um, let's say, uh, tectonics rather than simulation. So um, uh, for me, I think uh, as far as the developing my skill set goes, uh, I think it was quite a steep learning curve. After I joined DRL, my skill set sort of, you know, skyrocketed very, very quickly. It's also like why, a very... why, why do you think after DRL your your skill set skyrocketed? Well, uh, during the course, you'll actually find that you're surrounded by so many people doing many different things, and somehow just being in that space or just being in that environment, and you you almost uh, just uh, by proximity to others learn a lot. So it's not even only what you're working on, but you can also uh, look into what other people uh, are working with. So. You know, I might have been working at the time with processing in Maya, but someone else was working with, you know, computer vision and RAWs and stuff like that. So you would have insight into other uh, strains of uh, research. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I really, really enjoyed studying in DRL. And eventually uh, now I'm also teaching in DRL uh, alongside the people that used to be my tutors. Uh, and I have to say that the environment has not changed in that sense. <laughs> that you kind of, uh, just by being there, you, you sort of... Um, pick up so much knowledge from everyone else, both the tutors and the students, because it's a research-based environment. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So HyperScheme version uh, 1.0 yeah. is one of the most exciting webinars for Design Morphine, and where you will be teaching a polyga polygonal uh, modeling techniques uh, on the human body. I love yeah. your designs. Can you <laughs> share an insight into how this will be taught? Uh, well, um, the webinar itself is centered on polygonal modeling and it will show non-disruptive workflows which deal with setting up parent meshes, meaning that we'll work first with low-poly modeling to set out, uh, let's say, um, initial blueprints of the design and then everything else that is derived from that level will actually become somehow concordant with the original mesh because it originates from a similar topology. Uh, in, in general, the idea behind the webinar is the idea of prosthesis, what happens when you augment the body and something that heavily uh, is connected to the master's course that I will be also be participating in with Design Morphe next year. Uh, and it's all about kind of asking these questions about what happens once the prosthetic, um, prosthetic sort of nature changes our physiology. And you know, you know, even when you're an undergrad, you open up one of those books like Neufert and you see like those measurements showing like the tiny scale of a human and how that relates to space. Uh, and I think one of the questions that we're trying to pose both with the webinar and the masters is like, what happens when that physiology changes in a way where you kind of have to consider the implications for architecture as well? You know, when your body is no longer just human in the sense of the original physiology that you have, but maybe, you know, this kind of enhanced skin that we're talking about in the webinar and the masters will become something that really changes how you relate to space and by extension architecture. So in the webinar itself, we'll be mostly focused on Maya polymodeling. Like I was saying, uh, well, whereas in the masters we'll go into like much in, more in-depth explorations about what prosthesis might mean and how it might relate uh, to the kind of special software that we're using uh, with regards to like Maya and simulation environments as well as as modeling environments. Yeah, amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the master's degree more a little bit more than like what you briefly said? Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. I think like what's the program? What's the sections that you're gonna teach? Well, the, the sections that I'm... Other sections as well, if you hmm. want to. I think that, the, let's say, I will focus on the sections that I'm going to be responsible for, mostly with my co-tutor, Joe Cook. So we are in the section that is, like, let's say, the, the lowest scale, meaning the prosthesis, which we were talking about, which I was talking about just, just now. 
So the idea uh, will be how to relate prostheses to the changes within the architectural space around us as a consequence of us sort of inhabiting this prosthesis becoming more than human. Uh, and as we go up in scales, other sections and other tutors, some of which you've uh, now met in the other interviews as well, will be uh, talking about scales that kind of transcend into the unit and then into an assembly and then uh, into what I think Madeline is also uh, is going to be researching and helping the students with, which was, uh, I, I believe, uh, referred to as cosmogony in the, in the course. And it's yes. kind of like <laughs> a very, very high level of organization within a Super advanced. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah, right. So uh, simulation-driven digital workflows is a topic that you've been working and lecturing about as well. Mm. Can you tell us uh, what, what softwares do you use in creating these workflows? Yeah, so uh, I'm mostly based in Maya and Grasshopper. Uh, what we've been most uh, interested in so far, I think, like in the, in the course in the school with DRL with regards to what I was teaching my students, uh, is creating workflows that communicate between Grasshopper and Maya, meaning Rhino and Maya, essentially, by using a like, very low level of communication uh, on text-based uh, code. So basically, uh, kind of trying to uh, traverse between two softwares by using uh, direct commands in the command line rather than using the user interface. So this really kind of opens up the um, possibility for you to kind of communicate with software on a lower level. So you're not really using the interface as such. You're actually communicating with this code. Um, Grasshopper kind of ended up being more of a focus in kind of generating code, like generating text-based information that then is getting fed into Maya and interpreted in the Maya environment. Basically, the text gets turned into geometry or a simulation uh, or some kind of experiment that we're setting up. Um, in general, we were talking about using uh, Rhino as an environment in which it's much easier to kind of communicate, let's say, set up things, whereas Maya's environment is much more advanced simulating things. So pair, like sort of pairing up those two softwares also gives like a, like a let's say a more of a, a friendly introduction to students <laughs> to Maya and simulation because yes. everyone usually is more, um, more um, let's say accustomed to the Rhino environment nowadays. You don't like even in undergrad, people already know it and are very, very proficient with it. Yeah. Uh, one question out of the script, uh, how to get a job at GHA, someone asks in the <laughs> question section. Good question. Um, <laughs> well, I, I will, I will uh, maybe explain on my um, <laughs> Yeah, your experience. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, but how, they, after, how it happens? Well, a big part of it is basically being exposed to an environment through DRL, which has a very intimate connection to the office. Obviously, DRL was founded by the principal of the office, Patrick Schumacher, and there's so much cross-pollination between the course and the office itself. You end up meeting people who were in the course and then went to the office, who are still working in the office, but were part of the co course in some capacity, either as a student or a tutor. Uh, there, your social network really grows into the direction of sort of communicating a lot more with people who run in the circles that either work in Zaha or work as consultants or work as teachers and uh, uh, sort of attend the students in the school. So I think like definitely that, that social circle or introduction into the social circle helped a lot, as well as the skill set that's kind of very specialist and kind of tied to Zaha in that way that uh, your portfolio sort of changes uh, so much in the in the direction where um, your work becomes far more relevant to the work of the office as well. So I think in, in my experience, that was the case. Uh, there are other experiences, I'm sure. Uh, there's plenty of other courses as well, I would say, in, in Europe that are more closely tied to what happens in Zaha. I, I would say Angevante is for sure one of them. Um, and I think in general, I would say that the academic environment really affects your, your likelihoods of joining Zaha. <laughs> uh, but I mean, everyone is an, with an excellent portfolio and like a keen eye for design should definitely apply. Uh, applications are considered all the time and absolutely you, you, you will be considered and uh, it, it's definitely an amazing environment to work in. Amazing. So uh, if you're at DRL, you're getting the job at, uh, <laughs> at the ZHA is, is up to 70%. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot comment on that directly. <laughs> Just an advice. <laughs> yeah. Joking. Well, yeah. 
So I just wanted to make some <laughs> like uh, <laughs> yeah. advice. <laughs> so thanks for joining. Lastly, as a global lecturer on your work and uh, teaching in many, uh, many mm. uh, topics, what advice would you like to give to young architects and designers around the world? I think like the most relevant right now is just to really embrace uh, interdisciplinarity. I think you really need to start communicating with other professions and environments um, a lot more heavily than uh, maybe architects are used to. So I think obviously something that is def definitely always pushing the conversation forward, especially in today's world is technology. So I think communication with the, that area um, of expertise becomes sort of necessary in order for, for us to push architecture also in, in, a, in, a, in a faster paced environment that's very technologically driven. So I think interdisciplinarity and sort of openness to other uh, areas of uh, not only of design, but like uh, areas that might relate to scientific areas or engineering, uh, that is really the only way to sort of progress further because um, architecture has this kind of uh, habit of sort of maybe lagging a little bit behind other uh, disciplines and really informing architectural work with outside knowledge from, let's say, the technological fields, which move at like a lightning pace is something that ends up being quite um, quite, I think, quite useful for architectural students as well. Uh, because in the end, you're also designing spaces within a paradigm that is very much controlled by the technological adv advancements, especially today. Yeah, amazing. One more question, last mm. question, I bet. Uh, yeah. Where does this love for uh, like wearables for the human body come from? How did you start it? I mean, wh why? Uh, for me, like the interest was uh, something that was brought to me also by Design Morphine because this is something that uh, all of us wanted to work on. But I think the first time that I really started thinking about prosthesis and augmentation of the body was actually during one of the seminars in school, which was discussing this idea of like how people are starting to enhance themselves. And uh, I believe that one of the uh, examples that were thrown sort of in the mix was, um, I'm not sure, sure if people are familiar with her. She's a Paralympic athlete, Amy Mullins, and she had this, um, uh, these prosthetics made for her legs because she had, I believe, a, a very rare congenital um, uh, condition that meant that um, she had to have her legs removed at a very young age. So the prosthesis that she was kind of wearing, and she's also did, done a TED talk on this, she was talking about it in a way of like, she wasn't trying to fix something that was gone. She was trying to change her experience to be so much more. And she said, you know, one day I might be, you know, I might wake up and I might want to be six feet tall, not, not my usual 5.7 or however. Uh, and then she was kind of working with all these designers that were doing all these amazing um, prosthetics for her. And then I also uh, sort of encountered an individual called Neil Harbison, I believe, who um, has visual impairment, but he had uh, created uh, a prosthetic that allows him, if I remember correctly, to interpret certain uh, colors or um, a certain color ranges as sound. So uh, for him, sort of experiences were immediately visual and oral, which I found very, very interesting. And this idea that like it became almost a part of uh, him in, in a way that, you know, your, your face is like even on his passport, <laughs> actually, you can see it like he's wearing it. So it, it is amazing. him, like it's not like a, a thing that he's attached to. Yeah, amazing. Thank you, Alexander. Yeah, thank you so much. This is Thanks amazing. for joining. And, yeah. Uh, hope to see you at the webinars. <laughs> yeah. I hope to see everyone else as well. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Would you like to introduce yourself and continue with that? First of all, I would like to, to thank you for, for inviting us to, to your channel. And uh, okay, so about me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm based in Bucharest. Uh, I've done my bachelor's in Bucharest. Then I studied uh, my master's at, uh, at Bartlett. Um, I was part of the, of the Wonder Lab. Wonder Lab is a lab, was a lab at Bartlett Design. Uh, and um, we were involved in uh, uh, computational workflows there uh, with high-resolution simulations and robotic fabrication. Uh, personally, for me, um, being there was um, uh, very eye-opening. So getting to see all these um, uh, amazing individuals, all these teachers with uh, 
you know, their, their great skills and understanding the values that, that guide their work there, that was very inspiring for me, especially because I was involved in computational workflows before, but that, that really brought it to another level. Uh, and from a professional point of view, it was very good um, because, you know, I had to, a chance to work on a, on a pavilion for the Venice Biennale, for the, the Croatia, Croatian pavilion with Alisa Andrasek. Um, I had the opportunity to learn, like, I, I, I really learned how to code from Dagan Cham, who's, uh, who's one of the founders from AA Build, and he's, like, really resourceful in terms of uh, yeah. programming and fabrication. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of great people there which really inspired me and made me, you know, up my game and uh, learn a lot more. Yeah, amazing. Spatial Synthesis version 1.0 is the topic you'll be lecturing at uh, Design Morphic. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's Biomorphic yeah, Network. Yeah, Biomorphic, Biomorphic Networks version 1.0 is your lecture at that will dr dive into agent-based modeling. Can you enlighten us uh, what factors you will be touching up upon with the webinars? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, well, I mean, th my, my personal motivation for this is like uh, a lot of the computational design we're doing nowadays, uh, that it's, you know, it's based on refined and precise tools for modeling geometry. Uh, and, and all that is fine, but I guess what I'm trying to do with this webinar is, uh, you know, search for things that we can do that are beyond what our minds can, you know, imagine or even control. So I, I would dare to say that in this, this webinar, the main goal is to seek the, the, the unexpected. So in order to do this, I've written a Grasshopper plugin, which will, uh, you know, will be launched uh, exclusively for the people at the, this, this webinar. And uh, this plugin is based on a on a pretty smart organism called uh, slime mold, or if you want, uh, Fisarum folicellatum, which is uh, like uh, the many-headed many uh, slime. Uh, and this organism is, you know, is very uh, efficient at creating uh, networks of transport. And the way it works basically maps out a space in search for food because that's what it wants to do, it wants to eat. And as long as, long as it finds food, then it creates very efficient networks uh, for the distribution of nutrients throughout its body. Um, so, but this is basically like a, you know, it's a relatively new domain and, and a new algorithm. It's been first theoretized in 2011 by Jeff Jones and PhDs from all over the world have been employing it just for the last two decades. Uh, I mean, amongst other things, they've been solving mazes with, with uh, Fisarium. And one recent research paper by uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, even used the particularities of, of pattern formation of slime mold to model a representation of the uh, large-scale structure of the universe, which I find, like, really amazing. Uh, but one of the most well-known experiment scientists um, yeah. did were like uh, in Japan they placed oat flakes which are like uh, the favorite food of slime mold uh, so they, they placed them on a pet petri dish in a pattern similar to the cities around Tokyo and then they stayed and waited and they watched how the, the slime mold you know they, it morphed into a route that resembled shockingly close to the, the Tokyo railway system so in a way, the, this uh, optimized hunt for food from the organism resembled the efficiency that, you know, we as humans have been doing, you know, have been planning this for more than 100 uh, years. So we were looking for efficiency when planning the, uh, the transport network, and this organism without a brain could, could manage it in, in 24 hours, which is quite amazing. Uh, and what's intriguing about this, this, this organism is that it, it doesn't need a brain to act smart, you know, it's like it employs something called swarm intelligence and like it's, it's, it's this kind of intelligence that we, we usually find in insects like bees and ants 
And if you think about ants, for example, you know, they, they build these huge colonies and they farm and they wage war against each other. But at the end of the day, each unit, each ant, it's, you know, it runs by very simple rules. It's, it's not very smart by itself. But together with, with the group, uh, I mean, they, they exhibit uh, an intelligence that is uh, in ways that uh, the individuals cannot exhibit that intelligence. So they're more intelligent as a group. So it's the yes. same with, with the slime mold. And what's, what's intriguing is that, you know, the slime mold doesn't even have a brain. It's, it's, it's in a way, it's one, of, it's one cell. So like it can reach half a meter in length. It's just one cell. And uh, it has, uh, you know, by, by looking at it, you can look at how, um, how, how, how it can solve complex things without a brain. And uh, still it's, it's something that um, a, a lot of scientists are amazed of. And it's something that we haven't figured out 100% yet, but it's, uh, it's, it's a place where, where it's, yeah, it's quite interesting to explore. And I, I believe that like practical scenarios of this could be in the future uh, how to manage the city planning when we'll be surrounded by self-driving cars, for example, uh, because self-driving cars we like are ba basically computers on wheels, and they will form a you know a, a decentralized system, and. Um, by, by, by looking at how, how, by simple rules, this organism deals with, with problems and how it creates its networks, we can figure out efficient ways where we can uh, distribute or redistribute the cars on the road so that we can increase the, the efficiency of transport in the future. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, we had a question from one of our audience. How you consider... How would you consider it as a kind of design and converting them into the real world? I mean, more than three-dimensional computer-based design. Uh, so how you would uh, materialize it, you mean? Yes. Or... Yeah, you gave a great example how these autonomous cars could be used, these plannings, like uh, in, in cities. Maybe it is an example? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's, you know, I mean, if you look at my promo material, I didn't insist on practical applications that much. Mm -hmm. It's something that, that each one of us can, can, you know, bring his own or her own view to this. Because, like, for me, it's, it's something that uh, before applying it to something practical, uh, you, you basically have to understand uh, why it behaves like this. And for me, the behavior is more important than, you know, I, I don't want to have like an algorithm like Voronoi or uh, topology optimization where you just uh, drop it on an object and then you get like a, a, I don't know, like a structure that looks like a tree and there you have it. You can say it's optimized. That's, that's not my interest for me. My interest is to guide people to, you know, explain what this thing does and then hopefully each one of us will come up with ideas of like real life implementation. So my, my role here is really just to, to open people's eyes about it and, and discuss about it with, with everyone. And then it's for each and every one of us to, to find out his or her own uh, in implementation of this. Yeah, amazing. And you're involved in the frontiers of advanced architecture and design with the emergence, convergence of science and technology. What's the future of architecture and humankind you see? <laughs> that's a bold that's question. A, <laughs> very bold question, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I believe that automation will play a huge uh, part in the coming de decade. Like we are at the, you know, we were talking about uh, self-driving cars. Yeah, and I just sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm asking this question based on the patterns that you, you are working. Mm -hmm. And we will see these kind of patterns in the future uh, very soon. That's why I'm asking this question. Okay, I see. Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, it, it depends on us, like, uh, or on, I, I mean, my... 
I don't even want to see these patterns. Like I, I don't have like a desire to see them implemented. Like it's just a, for me, it's more like a, a, a question of understanding new ways of intelligence and uh, looking at them through the lens of uh, science, because uh, you know, we, we've been so uh, connected to this romantic idea that the, the, the best intelligence is the human intelligence for so long. Uh, but now, you know, we are faced with other types of intelligence, like artificial intelligence or all the intelligence from nature that we are constantly discovering. And the only way we can open our minds and like uh, make better decisions is if we uh, go into this kind of new new areas that haven't been explored so much and um you know we 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 develop some some broader ways of thinking um and um yeah i mean I, I, it's not i mean my my webinar is more based on a theoretical aspect or it's more in a way it's uh, uh we I'm just trying to to look uh, like speculate, but it's not. Uh, I'm not uh, Nostradamus. I don't know what will happen in ten years. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm just taking part in this, and it's it's up to all of us to to change it or shape it in a way or another. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> so, uh, could you share your ideas behind the technology company you started, which is specialized in the large-scale 3D printing called Drag and Drop in Bucharest? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, it, this is uh, Drag and Drop is a technology company uh, founded two years ago in Bucharest by me and uh, an entrepreneur, Dragush uh, Sabarano. And we've been uh, specializing in large trace, uh, scale 3D printing, larger scale 3D printing, you know, with bigger nozzles, bigger, bigger scales, and custom-built software that takes into account the possibilities and uh, the limitations that can be done through this uh, uh, 3D printing, through this new medium of fabrication. So in a way, in, you know, in, if you remember in 2010, there was this big hype with 3D printing and a lot of people just jumped in the 3D printing scene with this naive sense that this revolutionary technology will change everything. Uh, but now I, I see that more and more there is this second wave of designers, engineers, and uh, technicians uh, that, that joined the movement. And this wave uh, has a more mature approach and less hype-induced perspective over the technology. So one important part, we at Drag and Drop, like being in this second wave, uh, we, are, we are trying to pursue as designers like uh, and, and explore the aesthetics of this new technology. So we are not interested in smooth surfaces, rather in jagged patterns. And we are exploring particularities and specific application where in terms of aesthetics or performance or speed or cost, 3D printing can be radically better than other ways of manufacturing. So we, we don't believe that this is like the, the technology that will, will change everything, but we are trying to look into where it can be better. And um, one of the important values that we focus a lot on, on in our practice is, uh, is sustainability and circular economy. So we are using uh, for the polymers, we are using recycled polymers, we are using biodegradable polymers. Um, so all in all, like at drag and drop, on one hand, we are developing products with 3D printing, uh, which anyone can buy through our online shop. And on the other hand, we are working on custom projects. So basically, you know, serving the community of designers and makers here in Romania. And, uh, you know, we never get bored. It's always proactive, uh, problem-solving oriented mm -hmm. approach. Yeah. Uh, where does the name come from? Drag and drop to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, what, what does a printer do? You know, it just drags and drops things around that that's all it does. Yeah. Because I mean, I've, I've heard so many times people saying like, Oh no, this is not designed. This is done by a machine. Well, at the end of the day, the machine just does what you tell it to do. And um, 
Yeah. It's just drags and drops, you know, and the rest is up to the to the designer or architect. Designer, yes. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Thank you, thanks, Madeline, for joining. Do you have anything uh, as a final words to say? Yeah, I, I I would I would say to to your audience that if you're the kind of person that's interested in design, biology, or intelligence, and have opened Grasshopper a few times already, meaning you don't need a basic intro. Uh, but you are curious about using a computer as a digital Petri dish and you are curious to co-create with a digital organism and you are curious to explore uh, a new territory where very few of us have been, you should definitely join my, my webinar called Biomorphic Networks. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for joining for this live session and uh, good talk. <laughs> Bye-bye. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe to Peer Talks Podcast and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts in order not to miss a single episode. Also, you can find out more by going to parametric-architecture.com slash patalks. Please share this podcast with a URL to inspire a friend. Also, you can use hashtag PATalks on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to give us a feedback about the podcast. Thank you.